Hello and welcome to another episode of Fragments of Fear, a Jello podcast where Rachel Nisbet and myself pick an overlooked, underappreciated or just plain obscure Italian thriller and talk about the film, director, actors and anything else you can think of. Should we start off by saying sorry that we're a bit late? We've both had like health issues and other things in our personal lives that have forced us to put this on the back burner for a little while. Yeah, it's... Sorry, should I say hello before I go into that? Hello, everyone. Yeah, we've both yeah had a bit of a nightmare a month and a half. So, yeah, you've been ill, I've been ill, my nana died, and your work and everything. So it's been up in the air. So we're really sorry that it's um, been a bit longer than usual, but we really appreciate everyone's patience. And we had loads of nice messages as well, just saying, like, take your time and stuff. So thank you for being patient with us, and we're glad to be back. Yeah, thank you. We're really happy to be back. So, how are things at the moment? Is 2021 finally treating you any better? Um, not really. Not really. (laughs) Yeah, it just seems like lots of bad news this start of the year, but hopefully it gets better. I've just been called on jury duty at cinema, so I have that to look forward to at the end of the month, potentially, if I get picked. That's exciting. Yeah, so I'll be sitting there with my popcorn and um, reclining chair, watching a trial, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I've just yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like the only thing that I've got scheduled in for this month. Yeah, that's about as good as it gets these days. I know it's terrible. I had my second birthday in lockdown, which was grim again. Yeah, just yeah, it's not sitting, ideal. Eating a whole cake to myself, <laughs> no, two <laughs> bottles of like prosecco. That's fine. What about you? How have you been? You've been surviving. Yeah, been surviving. I've been unwell, the kids have been unwell, and yeah, I haven't had much time over for other stuff, but trying to watch some films. Anything decent that you've watched lately? I had a bit of a slasher weekend with a, f- with a few friends and saw a couple of new films, or a couple of films that I haven't seen before, like um, a possession flick called Retribution, which was a pleasant surprise, and I really enjoyed the 3D release of Silent Madness from Vinegar Syndrome thought that was a much better 3d use than your average 3d horror so that was cool i haven't watched that much euro how about yourself i've not watched too much either just because everything that's been going on but i've kind of been in the last well not few months maybe probably like six months i've been trying to like go back and watch the claude chabrol films that i've not seen or kind of ones that maybe i saw at the very start like 10 years ago and we're trying to like really familiarize myself with them so that's been fun i just watched um like nada or i think it's sometimes called the nada gang again yeah which is the first one i saw and that was really good like it has kind of really like good moments of black humor and then there's also a lot of kind of you know early 70s political stuff going on um starring role from fabio testi which is why i originally watched it but um, yeah yeah, that's that's a good one but i know a lot of people say it's one of his like weaker films but i think it's really good and it was nice to revisit it he's got quite substantial filmography as oh yeah it's mad it's yeah a lot so it's easy to kind of miss bits and pieces but a director well worth checking out and you can pick up like quite cheap box sets of kind of various films and just dive into them excellent i've seen a few but i I really need to see more of his work yeah hopefully it's something you can come to but you've had all these wonderful slasher weekends which are maybe a bit more (laughs) exciting It's interesting that you mentioned like a 3D film because I've I remember seeing things like My Bloody Valentine 3D at the cinema many moons ago. Yeah, but it's something that I've never I've not really seen that many 3D horrors. So it's interesting for you to cite one that you thought worked really well, especially you know like in a home release all these years later. Yeah, because it's usually just throwing stuff at the screen, but this worked a lot more with depth. So I thought that was really effective. But again, it's quite hard to 
to sit and watch a 90-minute feature with those glasses on. Yeah, I think that was always a bit of a downfall. You don't want to do it too often. No, <laughs> it's not like you want to have a 3D marathon. No, certainly not. You wear glasses as well, don't you? Yeah, that was a bit of a challenge, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but it worked well. Yeah, it's always the problem, isn't it? It's like contact lens day. Yeah, not that many new announcements since we last recorded, I think, but I've received the Lost Jalo Collection Volume 3 from Vinegar Syndrome and The Crimes of the Black Cat featuring a, an adapted <laughs> podcast commentary from a certain duo. Don't know who you're talking about. No, but like, yeah. rubbish apparently. <laughs> really the reviews are in and we're being slated all over no i think we're too scared to read the reviews hopefully there's none <laughs> no that's good you've got it because i've not received my i say i've not received it. i think it's at the post office and i need to pick it up but yeah it's exciting isn't it yeah very much so. on the back of a cover yeah i'm really looking forward to checking out that uh, print as well because that's always been as we said in in that episode it's always had um really poor releases before so it'll be good to to see this restored version yeah very exciting i'm really looking forward to watching it as well so i'm sure sure we'll come back and discuss it on our next episode yeah just trying to think what other releases there's been so there's been arrows doing that years of lead box set yeah and the bird with the crystal plumage uhd yeah obviously that's which you're on which you're featured on right yeah, I'm featured on both. So that was nice to finally announce those pieces of work. Yeah, really cool to be involved in another Argenta release because I was on the Phenomena one. Yeah. So I was really like happy to be asked to be on that one. Um, I think it'll be a good release. Um, but the Years of Lead one will be great. I think that was really exciting for Arrow to like delve into that properly. Yeah, a few of those have been um, released by Camera Obscura before, but this way it's much more accessible to a lot more people. Yeah, exactly, because those camera obscura titles are so expensive, especially with like if you're in the UK with Brexit now as well and import yeah. charges. And I think all of them are camera obscura. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but apart from Colt 38, wasn't yeah. if released on camera obscura. So that was yeah. one I was like, I have to do Colt 38 because that's my favorite one, I think, out of all five films. It's Dalamano, isn't it? So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very big fan of Dalamano. So it's worth getting the set, like for anyone, really. I think it's extras i'm not saying my essay but just in general the extras are good like good presentations and if you're not too familiar with italian crime films i think it's a good introduction to kind of various types yeah for sure and then of course the fracture visions release of silent action of course yeah i did get that in the post have you got your copy yet no on on its way so before we start our discussion of this month's film, we'd like to welcome our new patron, Jamie Hancock, who has kindly pledged to Fragments this month. Thank you for joining us and we hope that you enjoy our additional content. And again, thank you to everyone who has supported the show by pledging to us. It really means a lot. And if you're interested in pledging and accessing that bonus content, you can find details over at patreon.com forward slash fragments pod or fragments pod as I've written it down here. <laughs> I don't know what that'll take you to could be like a nemesis podcast it could be and as always throughout the course of this episode we're going to be discussing the intricacies of the film's plot and ending so there will be spoilers ahead so ready to get on with it I'm ready excited to get on with it of course debatable yeah <laughs> <laughs> So this month we've chosen to discuss Amicidio Pervocazione, a.k.a. Deadly Inheritance, later released as Le Assassino Halemani Pelute, or The Killer Has Clean Hands in English, and 1968 Jalo from the lesser-known director, Vittorio Sindone. Mm. 
nessuno sapeva perché. Avrebbe colpito e nessuno sapeva quando. Avrebbe colpito e nessuno sapeva chi. Era scattata l'ora del terrore. Una figura indistinta, impastata di sangue, sembrava avere l'omicidio nelle vene. L'omicidio per vocazione. L'urlo agghiacciante della morte ancora aleggiava nell'aria, si ingigantiva, martellava ossessivo in ogni cervello fino a rendere la paura follia. We've once again chosen a film from the late 1960s, as this is the era of the more prototype-style Shally, and it's interesting to examine these sorts of films in relation to what we consider to be the quintessential Shallow, as well as to see the various iterations of the Italian thriller post-Glod and Black Lace, but pre The Bird of the Crystal Plumage. On Fragments of Fear, we've already looked at some Shally from the late 1960s, such as The Murder Clinic, which is more on the gothic side of things, as well as Umberto Lenzi's So Sweet, So Perverse, which has a few elements in common with Deadly Inheritance. In particular, the Cluzo-style bent the narrative, which was a popular thematic strand in thrillers of this period, and extended into the Shally of the early 1970s, as we've discussed on various episodes. But, you know, when we talk about the shallow and try to explain what is to people who perhaps aren't so affiliated with the genre, we always come back to this wee spiel which involves citing the Mondadori novels and how they gave the mystery thriller genre its name in Italy. But often in our discussions of these films we don't really give particular attention to the literary origins of mystery fiction in the 20th century. And with a film like Deadly Inheritance it's clear that it's heavily influenced by the sorts of crime fiction that Mondadori published. The Agatha Christie mystery elements are certainly present here, especially in relation to an inheritance with conditions attached where its beneficiaries are slowly bumped off. So in many ways that gives Deadly Inheritance the feel of an older production, gives it perhaps more in common with the thriller cinema of the prior decades. Whereas we tend to associate the giallo as we often think of it as a modern and often urban product. So Deadly Inheritance in some ways is at odds with that characterization of the genre. So whilst many gialli share the same literary inspiration or whodunit style narrative, we often see disparities in the feel of these prototype productions just due to the Italian thriller not being as codified as it would come to be in the 1970s where it was at its peak. But we'll probably go into this idea a little bit more further on in the episode about how the film relates to like later Jali and what has in common with Jali of the 60s. Excellent. Like you said, Vittorio Sindoni is probably one of the least well-known directors we've discussed so far. He was born on April 21st, 1939 in Capodorlando on Sicily and moved to Rome to attend a film course, but left and instead managed to enter the film business by volunteering as an assistant. He managed to work both as an assistant and first assistant director, but left the film industry to study at the Centro Universitario Teatrale and later worked in the theatre to company Il Collettivo and for Rye Television in the 60s before making his debut with Deadly Inheritance. The idea for the film came from Romano Migliorini, who had already written scripts for Massimo Pipil's Bloody Pit of Horror, as well as Mario Bava's Kill Baby Kill, and would later write stories and scripts for Ricardo Fredo's Double Face, Night of the Devils, and Lisa and the Devil. The story outline was developed by Sindoni and Migliorini and was inspired by French thrillers 
authors such as um, Diabolically Yours, and they wrote the screenplay together with Aldo Bruno, who also appears as Andre in the film. It's interesting that you say there, um, I'm sure we'll get into it later, just about the French influence in the film, because that's definitely something that you can tell. And it's yeah. why it feels a bit different to an Italian thriller, I suppose. But yeah, we'll get into that. But it's, it's interesting that you highlighted that. Yeah, because there is a, a different feel to it from most of the other 60s jolly. Yeah, for sure. So I'll just give a little synopsis just to familiarise people with the film's plot before we get into it. So when Oscar, the patriarch of the Moreau family, is killed by an oncoming train on the railway line he works on, his three daughters, Simone, Rosalie and Colette, are surprised to learn that they are set to inherit a sizable fortune, but with a caveat attached. They must wait three years for Oscar's adopted son, the Doltus Janot, to reach the age of maturity in order for them to each pocket their share of their father's fortune. However, shortly after the contents of their father's will is revealed, Janot is killed in a train accident eerily similar to that of his adopted father's. Suspicious that it might be more than an accident, Inspector Greville is assigned to investigate the mysterious deaths to ascertain whether they're financially motivated murders. Is the culprit one of the sisters, one of their lovers, or someone else entirely? Again, we'll get into it, but it's quite a traditional narrative, really. And that synopsis could apply to so many different films. Um, it's very yeah. much your kind of standard inheritance kind of mystery film. Do you want to start us off with the players? Yeah. So first off in the film, one of our main characters, well, I should say first off, I mean, one of the main characters here is um, Simone, but we've already covered Femi Benussi in our Strip Nude for Your Killer episode. So we're not touching on her career as we've already done it. So I suppose our next main character is Inspector Greville, who was played by the American actor Tom Drake. Now, we've frequently spoken on the podcast about American actors finding work in Italy during this period, uh, perhaps due to a lull in cinematic roles for these actors in their native countries. And Tom Drake is another example of this international casting that took place for these sorts of protagonist roles in the Jalo. So Tom Drake was born in Brooklyn, New York, as Alfred Sinclair Alderdice in 1918. He had a conventional upbringing and schooling and began acting at the age of 18 in Summerstock Theatre. He made his Broadway debut in the play June Night and proved popular with audiences, which led to further prominent roles in various theatrical productions, including the Broadway smash Janie in 1942, which led to a contract with MGM Pictures. Before his contract with MGM, Drake had made his cinematic debut in 1940 in Frank Lloyd's The Howards of Virginia, playing the 14-year-old son of Cary Grant. The role, alongside many of his other MGM pictures, including The Green Years and Courage of Lassie, would typify his performances of the period, playing young, idealistic characters, including his most famous role as Judy Garland's leading man, the boy next door, John Truitt, in Meet Me in St. Louis. Drake's career flourished, but he became disillusioned with being typecast as young men, and at the age of 29, he vowed to play his age from there on in. Unfortunately, the youthful roles he played were what made him famous, and his youthful looks didn't chime with the parts he wanted to play. However, his face soon began to age, giving him the freedom to take on more challenging roles, including performances in The Sandpiper and The Bramble Bush with Richard Burton, which he received acclaim for. In the 1950s and 1960s, Drake moved into roles in television and appeared in numerous productions, including The Ford Theatre Hour, Lassie, Perry Mason and The Streets of San Francisco. 
He continued to work sporadically in film, but predominantly worked in television in the 60s and 70s, and between television and film, racked up over 100 credits. His foray into the world of Italian cult cinema seemingly only extended to his role in Sindoni's Deadly Inheritance in 1968. In 1975, Drake made his final film, Savage Abduction, and final television show, The Return of Joe Forrester. Less than 10 years after his retirement, Drake died of lung cancer in the August of 1982. I'm not too familiar with him as an actor, to be no, honest No, I was just going to say that. Like, the kind of those MGM films are really are ones that I know very little about. Yeah. And I was almost kind of surprised to find out he'd had such an interesting early career because... It didn't really come across to me in Deadly Inheritance that he was like quite a known actor. Yeah, it feels a little bit like he's either slumming it or, you know, it feels like he's maybe a little bit too good for the part. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think there's like a lot of range for him in the film. No. And obviously he, he made his career, well, the start of his career was all about how he's these useful characters. Um, so this sort of role is probably against what people would have remembered him for. Their second sister, Rosalie, was played by Giovanna Lenzi, but we've covered her career as well on the Crimes of the Black Cat episode, so check that episode out, or the disc from Cauldron. (laughs) Nice one. The last one up of the Moreau sisters is Colette, who's played by Valeria Ciangottini, who was born in Rome on August 5th, 1945. She was discovered at 14 by Fellini and made her debut in La Dolce Vita as the girl in the final scene on the beach. And she appeared in a number of films during the 1960s by directors such as Bolognini, Roger Vadim, Riccardo Freda. By the time she was cast as Colette in Deadly Inheritance, she had appeared in about a dozen films. Following this role, she appeared in her first TV role and her career mostly revolved around TV, with the odd exception during the 1970s and 1980s. Later on, she seems to have worked quite a lot in theatre, which slowed her TV work down, but she appeared in TV and film productions up until 2016. I haven't seen much of her work, but the one that intrigues me a bit is called Appuntamento a Liverpool from 1988. Oh, I've seen that. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, because one of our listeners, tell me if I'm wrong with that, This, if you're listening, but um, it's the, the one of the streets that they filmed in in Liverpool is where his parents' house is. Ah. Yeah, because it's all set in Liverpool, obviously, hence the name. Um, Yeah, I don't remember her in it, but then I watched it in like Italian, so I guess it wasn't probably paying as much attention as they should. Yeah, and probably not a, a huge role for her. <laughs> no. I don't really know anything about her career. Yeah, I have to admit, like, watching the film again, she didn't strike me as someone that I knew in anything else. No, Um, I mean, her work wasn't really in the genre film arena. No. um, And a lot of TV and theatre work, so it's not all that surprising. I mean, this is really the only film that would be of huge interest to a, a Jello fan. Yeah. I think she does well with the part here. Um, No, certainly. And yeah, it's interesting to know that she worked with, well, I say worked with, was discovered by Fellini. That's quite something. Quite a start to her career. Yeah. Hefty credentials. Yeah. Shall I continue with Cheneau, who's played by Ernesto Colli? He's another one of those faces that everybody with even a passing interest in Eurocot will recognise. Colli was born in Biella in Piedmonte on May 16, 1940. 
He became interested in theatre and film and early on and appeared in amateur productions and made Super 8 films with his friends. Apparently he was good friends with Italian star Vittorio Gassman and acted alongside him in both the theatre and in a few films as well. He got to play quite a few parts with that kind of what was likely creepy character. Did quite well portraying that kind of sweaty, intense energy as somebody like Antonio Casale did as well, who got to play similar parts. So he was, at least as far as I know, always used as a character actor. I haven't seen his entire filmography of about 70 films or so, but I believe he never appeared in the lead. This role of Chanel was about as prominent as it got. He appeared in Fellini's Toby Dammit episode in Spirits of the Dead and Spaghetti Western Jala hybrid Don't Kill the Poker player. People might recognise him as the scarf vendor in Torso and or as the groping colleague in Autopsy. From 1975 onwards, he worked a lot in, in TV with few film appearances sprinkled in, but Unfortunately, he passed away very young, aged just 42, on November 19th, 1982. I didn't realise he died so young. That's sad. That's a shame to hear that. Yeah, like you say, such a familiar face. And obviously we've touched upon one of his films already with Autopsy. But yeah, certainly memorable in that short role in Torso. Um, And you get these character actors, like, what's his name? Antoine Saint-Jean, is that right? name-wise um yeah that have just these like certain looks about them that make them so like adept at playing these sorts of characters um yeah. and really like leave a mark so yeah he's definitely kind of in that pantheon of actors in italian genre cinema it feels like it's been in more films it does yeah you feel like he's someone that would be popping up in all sorts yeah but he makes an impression in like you said in torso and in autopsy yeah and I guess we'll discuss whether we think he makes an impression as you know in um, Deadly Inheritance in a wee bit. Yeah. That just leaves us with perhaps a less prominent character in the film, Inspector Etienne, played by Virgilio Gazzolo. Now, Gazzolo was born in Rome in 1936 and was the son of character actor Loro Gazzolo. Loro's son and Virgilio's older half-brother Nando was also an actor working predominantly in television films and series. Now, as a young man, Virgilio originally wanted to pursue a career in the medical profession and began his medical studies, but subsequently abandoned them in favour of a career in theatre. Gazzolo then made his theatrical debut in 1960 in Gianfranco de Bosio's version of Dalton Trimbo's The Biggest Thief in Town, playing the titular character. Gazzolo, alongside Antonio Calenda and the director of Deadly Inheritance, Vittorio Sindoni, founded the first Roman theatrical theatre, which specialised in staging avant-garde style productions. After his foray into the project, Gitsolo returned to more traditional theatre and acted in numerous stage plays alongside roles in cinematic and televisual productions. He'll be most well-known to fans of Italian cult cinema for his role as the police commissioner in Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. Gitsolo, like his father and half-brother, was a voice actor and often provided Italian dubbing for a host of actors including Gene Hackman and Klaus Kinski. Gitsolo's last role on screen was in the late 1970s. His nephew, Matteo Gizzolo, is also an actor and was in Umberto Lenzi's The House of Lost Souls and Lamberto Bava's Body Puzzle in 1992. So yeah, not as I said, not a prominent character really, but someone with a bit of history. And I just thought that was interesting, that connection between him and Sundoni. Yeah. Which is for just sure. kind of a passing passing thing that I found. Um, I did, couldn't find out too much about that theatre company, but I guess that was the thing in the 60s, wasn't it? It was like this move into avant-garde, kind of unconventional theatre, because in Italy there's this kind of such a history of like traditional style theatre that 
there's a lot of kind of breakouts in the 60s where people tried something a little bit different. Yeah, I think we've mentioned before the, the difficulty in finding out information about theatre work. So it's always a little bit difficult to dig into that, especially as we don't speak Italian or exactly. read Italian. Yeah, yeah, really difficult. And also it's, it's, it's hard when we do these bios because we don't want to make them too long and we just try and pick out what we think people might find of interest or any like interesting facts. But yeah, maybe we're not too afraid with like people's theatrical careers, but then I don't know if people want us to reel off big lists and explanations of their work in the theatre anyway. So I'm guessing probably not. Probably not, no. Yeah. <laughs> right, so where shall we start with a film? Well... I was going to say, like, with the film, right, it's funny because when we prepare for these podcasts, we tend to do the section now where we discuss the film and we discuss, like, thematic ideas and areas of interest. But I personally found it to be a lot more difficult to formulate ideas on this one because I find it to be fairly conventional, as we've mentioned. And it doesn't really break the mould or go into those kind of deep, like, psychoanalytical themes like something like libido. It's kind of similar to the Jalo, like, that we see, you know, in the early 1970s, but not enough to do lots of kind of comparisons to those films so yeah a bit more of a a tricky one I guess to discuss I don't know how you feel about it if you feel it's maybe less of a layered film than some of the other ones we've talked about I think so I mean with some of these films it's quite easy to find like subtexts and look at the themes and in other films you can try to scratch the surface but you won't find a whole lot there and I think this is one of those films that what's there on page is is just what's there on page there's not a whole lot more behind it they were all fairly young when they made this Sindoni was 28 when he directed the film so he was in his late 20s when he um, when he wrote the film and I think it was purely a commercial venture really mm-hmm and I think that kind of shows. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, like you, like as you said, sometimes you just can't find that subtext there because it's very much by the numbers. It's somebody trying to emulate those kind of traditional whodunits of maybe the decades prior or more of like the, the French style from like the 60s. And that's what we've got here. That's the product. And like the whole thing with like the three sisters in the film, as much as I want to start bringing out my list of like, oh, it's like King Lear and Shakespeare and the three sisters. It's like, it, it's not there. So I'm not yeah. going to sit here and try and read subtext I really can't read into it there's nothing wrong with that though you know if something's an effective mystery it doesn't really have to have all these layers of subtext or kind of different meanings but yeah like you say I think just due to kind of the young age of those involved and the kind of commercial product it's trying to be it's not really going beyond that no it's a little bit unusual for us because most of the time we find that there's a little bit more than than first meets the eye in these films but this is more sort of more face value but I think one of the more interesting aspects of the film and one that I think is worth discussing a little bit is the setting because it's quite an atypical setting taking place in this fictional village of Epibet in the French countryside I mean there are some earlier Jali set in like more rural areas before but in that case, they're often associated with a high-flying lifestyle of the jet set. It's like a vacation in a seaside villa or a family castle. But this is interesting because this is the out-of-touch, slightly sort of shabby countryside, really, isn't it? We always do that, you know, like location kind of bit in the podcast. And that, that's kind of what I put down from my notes there. It does feel very different to those metropolitan kind of urban locations that we're typically used to. And shabby is a really good word for it because that's how it feels it feels like they're living in this like little hovel like farmhouse with you can kind of sense the dust and the exposed stone walls and it's very like with nature isn't it 
There's that kind of yeah. inside outside feel. And you get the sense of the kind of poverty that the characters are living in it does feel a bit kind of behind the times and quite a provincial rural life. Some of these inheritance style films, it's very much based on, you know, somebody having like loads of money and they live in a stately house or, you know, that they do lots of things, you know, the wealthy people would do. But in this case, we don't, well, the, the, the daughters certainly don't know the wealth that their father has. So it's yeah. not like they're living that sort of life that you would see in another film. It's like they, they come in, whether they're going to come into this wealth, but it's not reflected in what we're seeing. No. So there's no focus on the trappings of wealth as there might be in another Jalo or thriller. No, absolutely. Some of our favourite Jalo make use of like villages and provincial attitudes and of isolated smaller towns like Don't Torture a Duckling and The House with Laughing Windows. They spring to mind, obviously, but like both um, Torso and Your Vices a Locked Room feature some of these aspects as well with city folk and villages and um, some of those conflicts. And here, Inspector Greville is brought in from the outside, but you don't really get all that much in terms of those conflicts, do you? Yeah, it's like you said, like with Don't Torture Duckling or The House of Laughing Windows, these films are ones that kind of explore that dynamic more. Even something like The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, where we get, you know, Tony Mazzanti's character, Sam, the American, going into the countryside and seeing how this kind of yokel, you know, provincial yeah. type person lives. But yeah, those juxtapositions don't exist well, while they easily could have done. Like you say, Inspector Greville's character could have been used for that i think we get a sense not heavy sense but we do get a sense that the daughters are perhaps maybe trapped in various ways in the film you know they're kind of trapped in this lifestyle maybe they have aspirations of something more again not yeah not explicitly said really so I suppose you could look at it from that point of view is that there are these young women and we see kind of the nightclub and places and all what's happening there and you know we could get the sense that time is moving on times are changing but they're kind yeah. of stuck, you know, manning the railway line, living with their dad in this quite like rundown house. And then maybe as a viewer, you're kind of thinking, is this the motivation for them to want money so they can get out of this quite um, old fashioned style lifestyle? And I think in another film, like in a film that came a few years later, like maybe in the early 1970s, that juxtaposition probably would have been there more. Or we would yeah. have got kind of, yeah, more of the glamorous side of things that they're maybe aspiring towards. But as such, it's not really evident here. I think no. that's fair to say. I agree with what you said in, in terms of Simone and Colette probably wanting out, whereas Rosalie is more, she's more or less settled with her husband in this village and, well, not happy, but she's at least somewhat content with her situation. Yeah, she's kind of that like classic middle sister, isn't she? The one that's like just kind of goes on with things, is settled, like seems quite. I know she's probably not happy because there does seem to be this. I was going to say strangeness. I don't know if strangeness is the right word, but it doesn't seem like the happiest of marriages. But yeah, she's settled no, with her husband, not. and she's kind of yeah. taken care of. She's out of the family home. I suppose that's a better yeah. way of saying it. So. It's like, yeah, she's accepted her lot in life, whereas maybe Simone and Colette are, you know, wanting something else and they don't feel settled. No, they have aspirations. Yeah, because I suppose way, that's so. with Simone, isn't isn't that the case? Because she's got her lover that she can't be with and that's kind of a bone of contention in the film. Yeah, she's unusually glamorous, isn't she, for this little village? It's, it's funny because, like, we talked about Femi and Strip Nude for Your Killer and, like, she is glamorous in this way but in a different way to that like you know when you see her with hardly any clothes on and yeah. playing this kind of sex siren type character and here she's a lot more like buttoned up and you know like the big kind of 60s hairdo 
Um, yeah. and quite a cold character. I can't remember exactly what they refer to her as in the film, but I think it's something like, you know, she's quite like distant and a solitary figure. Yeah, a strange one who's said to keep to herself. Yeah, so alluring, but somebody that you're not really quite sure of, kind of the outsider in some ways. Yeah, for her is a quite restrained role, really. Like you said, quite a difference in terms of what the directors expected of her in 1968 and in 1975. Definitely. And I think that goes to show kind of the influence of kind of a changing industry and a changing society, doesn't it? And it's not like yeah. the 60s weren't like a liberated time, but that was slower in some ways to move through kind of culture than it was by the 70s, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's just funny when you look at films from like the mid to late 60s and they can be very like progressive and embracing all these like fashions and you have ones on the other side of things which you know they're a lot more kind of traditional and that's I think this is kind of more an example of an example of the traditional um, yeah. in every way like I said it's it doesn't feel as so much like a shadow I would say than what people might expect you said before that it feels like an older film and I would agree if you see this for the first time I think you'd be slightly surprised to find that it was released in 1968 because it doesn't have that late 60s feel to it there's no elements of counterculture I mean there's this like little village in the French countryside with these highly unlikely nightclubs being ran. <laughs> but apart from that, there's not much to date it as late 60s, is there? No, and it's like you mentioned Diabolically Yours um, earlier, and it's obviously, like you said, it's, it's influenced by that film, but that film feels far more progressive than Deadly Inheritance to me. Like this, again, it just feels like more old-fashioned. Um, mm. And I suppose you can attribute part of that to the fact that, you know, like the shallow as we know it hasn't really like kicked in properly at this point. But even then, just in general, in terms of film, it, it does feel quite dated. Yeah. And it's not copying the the by now quite popular strand of, of sexy shallow, like The Sweet Body of Deborah or Lenzi's films either. I mean, this is quite far removed from that chat set crowd. Well, exactly. And it's interesting that you say like, yeah, like the sexy shallow, because it's quite a chaste film. I mean, I know there's like that shower scene yeah. that we have, but by like, you know, compared to a lot of the other films of the time, you know, even just not shallow, but like, you know, like the kind of sex comedies and stuff, there's not really any titillation or any kind of frothiness or glamour or anything like that. It is, I keep saying the word traditional, but it does feel a lot more traditional. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah, than what was going on at the time. And I think, I, I don't know if I, I, I'm just repeating myself here, but yeah, if this was a film in 1971, you can see easily what bits they would change. You know, especially mm. like the farmhouse setting and stuff, that would probably change, like just the fashions and the looks of the women. There'd be like more sex. Um, the relationship between Simone and her lover um, would be amped up more. And like, you know, things like that. I, I And the nightclub scenes would be, it wouldn't be such a kind of like a bar and it would be like a proper nightclub yeah. or something. Um, And there'd be more like going into the city and coming back. And I think the way it's filmed as well, especially seems quite rudimentary. Mm. you could see maybe some more experimentation with that so it's not necessarily the whodunit traditional kind of narrative is it's not like those we didn't have traditional narratives going on in later films but i think it's like the fact is traditional narrative combined with the way it's very like rudimentary in terms of how it's filmed how it's styled like all these different elements is what makes it feel a bit more old-fashioned or 
at odds with what we would expect. Yeah. And also the three sisters, there's very little there in terms of like character dynamics and the relationship between the sisters, I think. Yeah. Which is surprising because that, that's usually something that's really like a gold mine of red herrings and conflicts and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because it's I've got here down in my notes like the dynamic of the sisters just feels off and underdeveloped. Yeah. And yeah, like you say, it would be perfect for red herrings. Are they like have they got these kind of histories between one another? Do they have like, you know, past rivalries? Like yeah. what's the dynamic? Is it that traditional older sister, middle sister, younger sister, and someone stealing someone's boyfriend? You you could just see it in another film being developed far more and it feels like there's not the relationships between them which means it's hard to really care about if they are backstabbing each other or if one of them is in on the murders it just feels like wasted opportunity and I think there's time given and attention given to aspects of the film that isn't needed and could have been brought into that no I I certainly agree I had this section written down or I wrote (laughs) down family and I thought like and family and sisters And I was all set to write down a loss here, but (laughs) I didn't manage to get all that much down on paper because there isn't all that much in terms of those aspects in the film, even though you sort of expect it to be. Well, that's that's the thing, because you would expect it. The minute you see three sisters, right, how is that going to play out? Because it's something that we see a lot in literature and film about, you know, families and how we've got this adopted brother as such of Jeannot and like, how does that come into play? But again, that doesn't we don't really get a sense of the jealousies or how they feel about Jeannot as their brother. Either. Well, you get, a, you get a little bit of that, don't you? Well, are you thinking like... of the shower scene? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was thinking of, of the sisters and jealousy of his role in the family of being like the father's favourite. Yeah, that's true, actually. I've completely forgot about that. You're right. There is like a bit that goes into that. Not a huge amount, obviously, but... Yeah, credit where credit's due, there is an attempt to highlight the jealousy. I've just chosen to ignore it. Yeah. And um, Jeannot's supposed to be, what, 18 in the film? Yeah. And when he reaches the age of maturity, 21, that's when they get their inheritance. But I believe Ernesto Coley was 28. Yeah. And looked probably 34. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really pause for, for somebody who's under 20. No, he, he looks a bit old beyond his years in the film. I think of the psychology of his character as well. Is, they don't delve into it too much, but we obviously know he's um, got some problems. I wouldn't know really what to say because I don't think we're really given enough detail, are we? On no, that. he's an odd one. He killed chickens, I think we find in the reveal. So I suppose he's supposed to have some sort of sociopathic oh, yeah. tendencies. Yeah. Cut the head off chickens. But again, like most of the other characters in the film, there's not like a whole lot of time spent developing the character or giving us any like real insight into who he is. Not at all. Other than like that kind of scene that stands out to me is when he's perving on Simone and she's kind of like, oh no. I know she slaps him, doesn't she? And then she's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. You think it's kind of strange because he's curving on you in the shower. So I think yeah. it's very valid to slap him. And then she goes back. And that's, I thought maybe more would come with that dynamic, but we didn't really see too much of their relationship. I think, again, in another film, maybe they would put an incestuous under, well, I say undercurrent, maybe more of an overt incestuous angle. Yeah. 
But it's, it's funny you mentioned there about how none of the characters seem that developed because in other films the characters aren't developed but it's fine because you've got a lot of kind of set pieces going on the film's moving along very quickly there's lots happening in other ways but here I think the pacing just feels very like slow and then it's not like it's all talkative in terms of like developing characters and motivations like there is some of that but I don't know it's strange that it's not like the character development is foregone so it can have like this other strand to it where it's more focused on murders no I agree it's not a set piece heavy film I mean, no. you see more of the aftermath of these murders than you do of the actual kills. You do get a couple of shots from the killer's point of view when he's stalking his victims, like um, when he kills Rosalie in the, what is it, like a garage or a machine shop. Yeah. And the murder of Colette as well, where she's attacked by a golf club. And I think both those scenes are quite reminiscent of um, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom to me. Yeah, it's such a really good comparison, yeah. Those particular murders. Those are probably the best set pieces. And then you get the aftermath of Simone's nightclub owner boyfriend. I can't remember remember his name now but he's found with a plastic bag over his head that feels quite explicit for its time i think yeah no i certainly felt that way too because it almost reminded me of blade in the dark which obviously it's yeah. bag over the head is far more violent but it, it does seem more explicit and also autopsy is another one that has that imagery but it's quite a stark image and yeah. it's not a particularly violent film like you say those pov shots are very effectively done like especially the golf club one but we don't really see the aftermath of the violence no maybe the exception of the bag over the head because it's more explicit what's kind of happened. Yeah, and then you get this chase of Leon who who <laughs> takes off after his wife is found in her father's coffin. And speaking of the odd pacing, because that feels <laughs> like a never-ending chase scene through these fields and in a rowing boat and quite protracted, I'd say. Yeah, overly. <laughs> so, yeah. Especially with, you know, he's not the fittest of people and he seems to just keep evading the police by, you know, like lying down in some reeds on a riverbank. And there's not really much of a thrill to it. Like it's a chase scene, but yeah, it goes on far too long and it, it feels a bit dull because it's like they just keep milking it far too much. Yeah, quite an odd moment in the film. You're like kind of looking at your watch going, when this is going to finish? Yeah. It's not a long film anyway. And it feels like moments like that are really padding it out unnecessarily so. For sure. I mean, it only clocks in at 78 minutes, and in some ways it feels like it's a bit too long. Yeah, definitely. And a film shouldn't really feel too long at that point, especially like a murder mystery. It should be a bit more thrilling for a thriller. Yeah. I did like, you know, when we're talking obviously there about some memorable scenes, you have the good memorable, like the golf club, and the bad memorable, like the chase scene. But I like the train murders in it. I think it's got a really effective opening. Yeah. I like the way, you know, you think, why is he not getting off the railway track and it's the hearing aid and that all becomes clear. But yeah, I did like that. That super effective score is really good for the opening. But yeah, when thinking kind of through the film and trying to remember like what I think worked well and and what stood out to me, there's not that many moments that feel kind of like, oh, that's straight away, that's my favourite one. Or I felt like there was something different being done with that. I completely agree with you. I mean, it's it's one of those films that it's, it's quite difficult to to pick out standout moments either because it's an exciting sequence or because it's a good exchange between characters or from a technical point of view Mm -hmm. but I don't know there's some kind of wonky charm about it to me (laughs) I still like it even though it's not great I mean you know it's not great I think Sindoni knew it wasn't a fantastic film but there's something something likable about the film I think 
Yeah. <laughs> so, like, almost like long yeah. pause. <laughs> Hard disagree. After watching like three times in preparation for this, trying to like find more things to say about it with my sparse notes. No, I I agree with you. There is like a kind of a, a charming element in terms of it being. Like, you know, like, again, like that prototype Jalo where it's it's got these thriller elements and it's trying to do things that maybe not effectively doing them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You kind of see what they were going for, but maybe it didn't quite come off. But it does have successful moments. As I said, I can't really, you know, name many of them, but it, it is enjoyable in, in parts. I mean, I think I like it less than you do. And it's hard trying to put my finger on why, because usually I'm quite forgiving about films like this, where I'm like, yeah, I can understand it, or I don't really mind about this, but I think it's just because I find it a bit boring in places. I feel bad for saying that. No, it is. I mean, and, and as we said, if it's a 78-minute film and it feels overlong, it's that's a problem. And I think for a lot of people who will watch this, it does lack a lot of what you associate with the genre as well. And this is so far removed from jet set crowds and swanky apartments as you can get this is provincial france with worn down furniture that's been around for 35 years and a dusty house that has seen better days but there's something about it that appeals to me even for all its imperfections yeah well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that like i feel like i'm just being really horrible now. no I'm, I'm i'm glad that like there's still something that like appeals there because i think that's important if least trying to find these positive aspects about these films that we talk about for some people the jet set element is like crucial and that really impacts on their enjoyment but obviously you don't have to have that maybe for me it's i feel like oh i wish there was more themes or more to get my teeth into with that maybe that's the issue i I understand what you mean because um there's not a whole lot in terms of themes and the central mystery isn't that exciting so what's left just is that sort of worn down quite cheap charm i still like and i like the setting even though they really should have made more with it no that you're right though and I, maybe it's not entirely the setting that i have the issue with maybe it's the way as well the settings filmed because it's not dynamic enough for me yeah but the set the setting's good now like the idea of this fictional town and and the prominence of the railway where they live and how that kind of factors yeah. into life and obviously we have this thing that was, like I mentioned, it was, it's very typical of films of this era where we have this Clouseau-style twist with Jeannot not really being dead after all. Yeah. Which, I don't know, did you like that as a twist? Did you anticipate it the first time you watched it? Or I can't remember if I anticipated it the first time I watched it or not. It does feel like they're cheating a little bit. There's almost a shot where falls under the train. Yeah. <laughs> And then it turns out it hasn't done that. So slightly cheating. But I don't think I expected the twist ending with... I could possibly see him coming back, but I don't think I... thought that inspector gerard was in cahoots with him yeah that's the thing like i don't feel like you know being alive is a big twist because again if you've watched so many of these films you anticipate it to a certain extent and um, although yeah. what does help the film i think is that there's quite a vast cast of characters there's like a lot of characters that are introduced almost to the point where it feels a bit like when you first watch it overwhelming but yeah like you say the fact that they're in cahoots is what makes it quite an effective ending and i i do remember that that surprised me at the time Maybe other people weren't surprised by that, but I, for some reason I just didn't inspect his involvement. Greville's. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was quite effective. Colette's boyfriend was in on it as well, wasn't he? And was killed off when he tried to blackmail Chanel. Yeah, because he's the one that let off the, um. God, this is my train terminology, the like barrier, that's the word. Oh, yeah. For the um cars to get past, I think. 
Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so quite a few people involved. Yeah, so it ends with uh, Colette shooting Gerard to save Inspector Etienne, and the film more or less ends with his confused speech by Inspector Gerard, where he says that he was Colette's last chance and that she's going to be alone, and then the film freezes as Simone and and Etienne walks off. Which is quite, I find that quite like a strange ending because it didn't feel like it was in the, you know, the main body of the film. There's nothing in the film before that that gives us an indication that she would feel like that. You don't really see where it comes from. Yeah, exactly. You kind of hear it him say it and you think, oh, okay, I didn't realise that was a concern because on the face of it, I don't think that concern would be something that any of the sisters would have about finding somebody else again. Yeah. Or just finding someone, it feels like kind of an odd thing to say, especially from someone like him who's much older. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if we can completely understand his motivations either. No. And then you've got the character of who I've mentioned in terms of our players in the film of Etienne. It feels like he should feature more. Again, it's this idea of we have quite a cast of characters, but a lot of them, they're not really doing anything. And they you feel like they could be a red herring, but then they almost don't earn the red herring status because they're so inconsequential and don't really have anything of note in the film. It's also like um, the ex-wife of Simone's lover. You kind of feel, will she be involved? But nothing really comes of it. I don't, I don't know. I feel like they're red herrings, but they never feel like very good red herrings now the ex-wife of simone's boyfriend she just disappears without a trace really doesn't she yeah we never see her again etienne has a little bit because there's something towards the end there isn't it where Mm -hmm. they sort of try to fake us out by saying that etienne is the killer they sort of allude to it a little bit that him and simone might end up together but there's not a whole lot there either you would think they would have expanded that a little bit yeah a relationship between those two yeah, it's another bit where you just feel like it's the script could have done with another draft or something, make that a bit clearer. Have we got anything more to say about the film or shall I move on to the production history? I'm, or? Af- I'm afraid not. I hope that was okay, everyone. <laughs> just like, yeah. I don't feel like I had much, as much to say about it and some of the stuff that I said was quite critical. I mean, as Peter highlighted, there's, there is a charm to it in places and I think for some people, they'll really enjoy the film. I fall more on the side of not being such a fan, but um, definitely worth discussing. Well, do you know, we usually think pretty much the same about these films, but in this case, I'm perhaps a slightly bigger fan of this film than, than you are. That's good that we have slightly different angles into, into some of these films. That's quite a good point, because I think most of the films that we've done, we've always been on the same wavelength, even if we've been, like something like Death Carries a Cane, we did have certain critique about that, that we shared, but we still kind of were on the same page. And again, like Fashion Crimes, we were on the same page about having kind of some more negative opinions towards it. But yeah, this is the first film, I think, where you've liked it quite a bit more than I have. Yeah. So interesting. It'll be interesting to see what comes up next in our episodes. Yeah. So yeah, if you tell us about the production history, that might shed some light on the film maybe a little bit but <laughs> because the film was produced by same film and it was shot on a shoestring part of in i believe it was in light, late 1967 mm-hmm. and according to sindoni one of the main reasons it was financed was that the producer not sure if it was marina vacca or sergio baldacchino but one of them was in love with femi benussi and wanted to get next to her and that's that's more or less one of the main reasons why they got finance for the film in the first place that's mad yeah originally it was supposed to be shot on location in and around Marseille but the limited budget meant they had to set it for Italy and there's just some stock footage of, of Marseille I believe and as I mentioned Sindoni he was 
28 at the time and he surrounded himself with a young crew all of them more or less recently graduated from the CSC so the DOP Asensio Rossi's second film and Maria Chettino had only edited two films previously so he wasn't an experienced director obviously and not an experienced crew either so that might explain why it does look a little bit flat and they probably had to shoot it quite quickly as well so no time to come up with these groundbreaking shots or multiple setups it was probably just like shoot it and move on Mm -hmm. but one of the best aspects of the film to me is the music that came from one of the more seasoned veterans among the crew the composer Stefano Tarossi who was about the same age but the Roman musician had already composed about half a dozen scores before this one he'd studied classical bass at the Conservatory of Rome before moving to the States at 19 for a little while and then he returned to Italy where he joined a band called the Flippers that <laughs> he made a living by translating liner notes for album covers and got his first break in 1963 in the soundtrack business when he composed scores for Idu Mafiosi and Catarsis the little scene Christopher Lee film which is included on the upcoming Severin box set and I think the music really stands out here as I said it's the main theme there is really kinetic and it, it's perfect for the image of the train hurtling along the tracks like mm-hmm. a distorted guitar and the xylophone and the soul trumpet and flute makes it quite it's quite a rocky track in a way but also mm-hmm. quite foreboding and there's a more atmospheric version of the main theme as well with wordless vocals and then there's of course the more classic lounge type cues and a few cues with accordion which are meant to invoke the French countryside and shake type tracks for the club scenes as well. Tarosso and Sindoni seems to have had a good working relationship because he returned for Sindoni's next film with a quite amazing name Italians it is severely prohibited to use the toilet during stops Oh my god. Yeah. That's quite a title. That's quite a title. And Rossi continued doing scores, but he also composed library music. And in 1974, he he worked on what would probably be his most well known album, The Highly Recommended Feelings, which is a really great fusion of all sorts of styles. If you haven't heard that, I can thoroughly recommend you checking it out. It's available on Spotify. Should I talk a bit about setting and production design? Yes, please. Deadly Inheritance, as we've said, is often noted as an early example of a rural shallow taking place in the fictional French provincial town of Epibay. In the film, it's depicted as a sleepy town, quite rustic, with not a lot going on, but comments are made throughout about the town, how the town now has two nightclubs. So presumably it's slowly uh, starting to see the change to the time with psychedelic surf rock music, fashion and 60s style dancing present. But as you said earlier, it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it, where it's like you kind of wonder how a small sleepy town can support these nightclubs but still the sisters often seem to be on the periphery of the action and i wouldn't say it's a film that particularly plays up those countercultural um fashion elements if the film was transplanted to 1971 they obviously you know would be more of a focus on that interiors and costumes aren't reflective of the stylish stylization that we're typically used to seeing within the shadow the sisters are dressed fairly conservatively i'd say you know perhaps in styles associated with earlier in the decade apart 
apart from Colette, who wears more modish attire, but not the extreme end of mod fashion, like in other titles. And often we see almost Pucci-esque style floral prints in a color palette of pinks, greens and oranges, and typically exhibited in Simone's wardrobe. But all in all, there's not much to comment on in regards to the costuming. The interiors are befitting of a family from humble provincial stock. We definitely get the sense that we're in the countryside and in a rural setting with the stonework and beams and sense of outside coming in. But again, not a lot to comment on that we've not really like kind of touched on. I think we do see a print of Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in the house at one point. Oh yeah. Might be wrong on that. I'm sure it's up on the wall though. But again, yeah, yeah the artwork reflecting the natural world that the film takes place in. And yeah, as you said, yeah, it was filmed in Italy rather than France and the train station scene is one in particular they used but yeah I mean most of the stuff here is just is what you've said or what I've said already just that like the setting isn't utilized in the way that Fulci or Bava or Avati have utilized these more rural settings in their films which is a shame because it could have been made something more of with the sisters being trapped in this sleepy town when which is at odds with their kind of youth so i think that's that rounds up setting and production designs the film received its censorship visa on january 24th 1968 and it got a 14 certificate and it was released as you said uh, but it didn't get wide distribution only regional which meant quite poor box office results and i've seen slightly different numbers here from like 27 million lira to 67 but which doesn't really matter because neither of them are good Mm-hmm. Um, so the film didn't do well and following the bankruptcy of, of the production company SEMA Films it was re-released under that title that you mentioned Assassino Alem Manipulita but this would be the first and only thriller from Sindoni that amazingly titled Italians it is severely prohibited to use the toilet during the stops <laughs> was his next project neither that nor his next few projects were particularly successful but in 1973 he made a film called La Signora Stata Violentata which made nearly 900 million lira at the box office and he made a couple of films that was very successful making more than a billion at the box office and these were comedies I think it's the 1975 film he made Son Tornare a Fiore La Rosa even now performed Anthony Oni's The Passenger. So quite successful. Mm-hmm. But apparently he sadly lost his young son in the mid-70s and he Sindoni lost the drive and the enthusiasm to chase film projects. So he made a few more successful films and a few under pseudonym that did decent box office, but he started working in TV, which was less demanding and more stable work and, and income. I believe he's still alive. Yeah, it's really sad to hear about um, his son, actually. And you can certainly understand why someone would kind of lose their drive to make cinema like that after something so tragic happened. I appreciate you um, sharing all those details as well about um, the production side of the film, because again, you know, someone like me, I'm being a bit harsh about it. But when you realise that, you know, the people involved were very much at the start of their career and it was, you know, shoestring budget, people with not a lot of experience, it does go some way to explain why it's not... Um, the most polished of productions yeah but obviously there's a certain amount of passion and that's what you're saying about it isn't it it's like that charm that comes through you can you can get the sense that people are maybe excited to be working on a film and trying to do the best that they can with what they've got yeah um so even if it's not perfect it's still you know something that people have invested a lot of time and effort into i think one of the reasons why i enjoy it as well is because it's somewhat of an anomaly i mean Uh there's not many films like this i mean it fits into the jala genre but it's very much a work on its own there's not a lot of films that you can compare it to 
No, certainly not, because I think there's other examples in the late 60s where there's other 60s films you can compare it to, or you can see how it fits with a film from a couple of years, you know, in, um, later, kind of early, into the early 1970s. But yeah, I, I, I find Deadly Inheritance a harder one to pin down in terms of what it reminds me of. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people that would argue it's not really a shadow, but we're just kind of doing what we usually do, which is looking at Italian thrillers of this period of time, so 60s to... 90s though we haven't done a 90s entry yet even if it lacks a lot of the tropes i mean that i don't think you'd come across a single italian book on giallo that wouldn't mention this film i mean it's firmly established as a giallo yes yeah, certainly so it's not like we're just picking it out of nowhere it's often listed as, as an example of a 60s entry yeah i think all we've got left is just to wind up now isn't it the final thoughts on the film yeah so yeah i would i mean i would say this this is what my thoughts here it might not be yours peter but just, <laughs> this is my conclusion to the film you can tell if you agree or not so deadly inheritance whilst not a particularly standout entry in the genre is a curious title as it demonstrates a more traditional take on the shallow which adheres to the whodunit literary foundations of the genre whilst the film's characterization is perhaps not wholly successful it does contain a plentiful cast of characters to keep its audience guessing Perhaps what's most notable about the film is the way one can compare an early prototype shallow such as this with the films that came a few years later, where we can see which elements would be heightened or dulled. All in all, Deadly Inheritance will never be considered to be one of the great Italian thrillers of the 60s, but still contains enough mystery elements to keep shallow fans happy, so long as they're not perturbed by the more languished pacing of Sindoni's film. So that's that. You know, I'm not going to argue with a single word <laughs> of, of those final thoughts because I, I agree with everything you said. It's just that, I don't know, that overall charm of it obviously works a little bit better on me than it does on you. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that's it. And I, I tried, I always try to be balanced in the final thoughts. So, like, I'm just, you know, saying like some people will like that, some people might find it a bit more off putting. But yeah, so it kind of it encompasses both our viewpoints on the film, I would say. Yeah, it's one of those films that you should have seen at least once as a part of your Jallo education. If you haven't seen it, it's not going to end up being your favorite film by a long shot. <laughs> but it's interesting because you get to see the like the full spectrum of these thrillers. Yeah, and that's what's fun about it, isn't it? It's always, yeah. you know, seeing the different kind of strands and yeah we all have our preferences so it's just a case of what you particularly like about the genre and what you don't and if you do want to find this film it's available on or that might be out of print actually it was included in a, a german jello box set on dvd a few years back with yeah with the english language track Good stuff. i'm sure that can be found yeah it'll be on ebay or somewhere yeah We've just got a few shout-outs we'd like to give some friends of the show. First up, we've got Jeremy Ritchie's got his upcoming book, Sylvia Crystal, from Emmanuel to Chabrol, which we've mentioned before. But that book is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo at the moment. It's already funded and there are stretch goals in play. But this is a great opportunity to get this beautiful looking hardcover coffee table book with a set of four unreleased Sylvia Crystal films on DVD or Blu-ray. So it's really good value for money and 
especially with shipping costs these days, because I believe that cult epics are going to ship these from Europe. So a great opportunity to actually get this without it costing a, an arm and a leg in, in shipping costs. And I believe at the time of the recording, there's 14 days or so left of the campaign. So if you do want to support him, head over to Indiegogo. I will be doing that soon because I haven't done it yet, but I'm planning to. <laughs> oh, very good. And it was also just announced, I saw it just today, that another good friend of the show, Bill Ackerman, will have his first solo commentary featured on the Scorpion Kina Lorber release of The People Next Door which is very exciting news and I believe that Blu-ray is out in July and that's a film that I'll be checking out for sure. Yeah and Bill's commentary track is going to be really good because he is meticulous in his research and he just loves film so much and it's going to be a delight to hear his um, thoughts so yes yeah. we're really excited for you Bill. And if you haven't checked out his podcast supporting characters featuring interviews with Rachel Nisbet for example <laughs> among, <laughs> yeah, uh, among a lot of other very exciting guests More credible do check guests. that out <laughs> finally the productive david sordegren strikes again Ooh. this time he's written a horror western uh, the navajo nightmare together with steve stred and i believe it's available on kindle at the moment but it will be available in print in um, early may i think Great. And for those of you who pledge to us via Patreon, our next upcoming episode will be a sort of question answer session in which Peter and I discuss some of the questions and topics you've posed to us about the Jalo and beyond. So if you've got a question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to discuss, send a message via the usual channels and we will be recording that I think next week. So it should be out soon. Yeah. Big thanks to all of you who've um, posted or sent us questions already. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. That'll be a joy to discuss. Yeah. Thank you to talk about so looking forward to uh, our social media which you probably know by now but if you don't you can follow us on facebook slash fragments pod we're on instagram as fragments pod our individual twitter accounts are rachel underscore nisbet or Sydney ward or you can mail us fragmentspod at gmail.com we'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing us usage of their cover of the main titles to Seven Bloodstained Orchids for our Fragments of Fear theme music and that's available to buy via their band cap at castleozarks.com well that wraps up our discussion of Vittorio Sindoni's Deadly Inheritance we hope you've enjoyed listening to our thoughts on this late 1960s shadow and we look forward to joining you next month with another episode delving into the more obscure offerings of the shadow until then goodbye sorry can I say that again why did I say yeah, of course you can. I said goodbye like it was a question <laughs> <laughs> I always find it really awkward like I, say, I know I always find it really awkward saying goodbye I don't know why but yeah. I don't want to say Till then, good night. Bye.